Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. When Jesus and the disciples celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles in their day, a very important part of the celebration each day of that seven-day feast and, and religious observance was that the high priest would make a procession from the temple to the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem, and he would gather a pitcher of water from the Pool of Siloam to bring back to the temple where they would use that water in a, a really intricate and amazing uh, water ceremony. It was a very important part of the way that they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the Feast of, uh, or the, the Pool of Siloam is very interesting. It was uh, made possible by a tunnel that King Hezekiah had built underground through solid rock from the uh, Gerhon Spring. And he had one group of construction people uh, chisel from one side of the mountain uh, through which the tunnel was built. He had another construction crew start from the opposite side and they had to meet in the middle exactly in the same spot for this um, spring water to be directed from the spring to the pool. Um, And also, uh, the Pool of Siloam is a place where Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And I think he wasn't just born blind, but there was more to the story. So we talk about all of that in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Uh, continuing to move forward in our uh, study of the feasts of the Lord and the seven appointed times that he gave uh, his people um, from uh, Leviticus chapter 23. And um, we have made it through rather quickly uh, the first six, and now we get to the seventh one, and we're kind of slowing down on this one and taking some time because if I mean there's a lot to all of them but tabernacles is one of the ones that has such promise for us as believers and uh, there was there was a lot during the Feast of Tabernacles there's a lot that goes into it there's a lot of kind of things that they do and did 
that was part of it. And uh, it is, as we mentioned before, the most mentioned of all the feasts in the Bible, in all of Scripture. The Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned more than any of the other six. So it was an important uh, celebration. It was one of the big three, as we call them, uh, one of the three uh, times when people were supposed to come to Jerusalem to celebrate, the other being the Feast of Weeks and uh, Passover slash uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and this, But this one was the most joyful of all. And it was joyful because it was a time of thanksgiving. Uh, they were uh, celebrating uh, the harvest because this, this was in what they called Tishri, their seventh month, which was in the fall. It was the, the last one in the fall. So it was in the end of September, beginning of October. And they were celebrating the harvest that God had blessed them with, the Thanksgiving that he had met their needs for another year. But also looking back to the time when their ancestors had wandered in the wilderness after leaving Egypt and how God had met the needs of those ancestors of theirs as well uh, in, a, in a wilderness place. Uh, where there wasn't a, a, a place where they could really uh, grow crops and so forth. But even there, God met their need. Manna from heaven and, uh, and, and water from a rock. And uh, last week we saw Zoolephet say that during the Feast of Tabernacles, there were two major ceremonies during that week. And, and Tabernacles is a week long. Uh, wrote, uh, Rosh Hashanah is on the first of the seventh month, the first day, and then Yom Kippur is on the tenth day, and uh, Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is on the 15th to the 21st, a seven-day uh, celebration, and even the eighth day is another day where they were supposed to, and Tabernacles is the only one that's like this. All the other ones, if there's one day or two days or seven days. This one actually was seven days plus an eighth day, which was to be another day of Sabbath rest. But um, but they, they're celebrating the fact that uh, God took care of their ancestors uh, during their time of wilderness wandering. And one of the ways he one of the ways he did that beside oh, well, uh, Zola Levitt was saying I forgot got sidetracked. Zola Levitt was saying that the, uh, the the water ceremony, which is part of Tabernacles, was to remind them of the water from the rock that God had given them in the wilderness. And the uh, light ceremony was to remind them of the pillar of fire that led them uh, as they wandered through the wilderness. Uh, and of course, they were called to uh, live in temporary booths or tents or tabernacles. Sukkot means tabernacle or tent. And it's a temporary dwelling. We talked about that last week that they were to live in for these uh, seven, eight days, uh, some of whom lived in it 24 hours if the weather permitted, uh, some of whom just take their meals there, especially today. And we talked about how it was supposed to be uh, built with some palms and, and willows and, and different things. And, uh, but the, the roof was not to be completely closed in so that they could look up in the sky and, and, and kind of worship God by looking up into the, uh, the heavens, as it were. So, um, so this is all part of what the Feast of Tabernacles is. But um, let's go ahead and look, just to, just to set our frame of reference again, let's go back to Leviticus 23 and just look at it again real quick here. Um, 
but also the, the, the reason they were supposed to live in tabernacles uh, during the seven-day period was to remind them that their ancestors had wandered uh, in the wilderness and they had lived in temporary tents, temporary booths. Uh, you know, they had to build them and take them down and, 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 and go and, and live. And they didn't have, a, they didn't have a, a place to call home, per se, and it was a temporary dwelling. But, but it's a reminder that even in this desolate place, God gave them the raw materials that they needed to build these, these booths, as it were. So, yeah, Sam. Um, I just wanted to be sure I got this right. I, I grew up in a um, community that was largely Jewish, and... And so Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are those are terms that I had heard, but I was never clear. I always want to be sure I understand this. So Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkoth are all really kind of lumped together, yeah. and they're all part of the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, no, they're not all part of Feast of Tabernacles. They all they are separate feasts and separate appointed times and separate they're observances. All, they're all within a, they're all in the seventh month, and right, the uh, Rosh Hashanah is on the first of, of the seventh month. Then ten days later, you have Yom Kippur, and then five days later, you have Tabernacles or Sukkot. Yep, they're all they're all grouped in there together at uh, at one time. Yeah. Thank you. Yep, yep. Which is similar to the spring, where you have Passover, and then the next day you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread that starts, and then the first Sabbath day after that you have Feast of First Fruits. So in the spring, in, in uh, what they call uh, Nisan, the seventh is called Tishri, but the, in the spring is called Nisan, the first month, those spring feasts are all grouped together, too, in the same kind of way, they, one right after the other, just like that. So, Okay, so let's look here at uh, Leviticus 23, just to remind us what um, this is about. Verse 33, it starts, says, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Benai Israel and say, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month is the feast of Sukkot for seven days to Adonai. On the first day, there is to be a holy convocation or a Sabbath. You are to do no laborious work. Uh, for seven days, you are to bring an offering by fire to Adonai. The eighth day will also be a holy convocation to you, and you are to bring an offering by fire to Adonai. It is a solemn assembly, again, another Sabbath. You will do no laborious work. Skip down to verse 39. So on the 15th day of the seventh month, you are to have gathered in, and this gathering in, this is another idea, the gathering in uh, of this harvest. And the idea of tabernacles, just as a little prelude, is the Feast of Tabernacles when it comes to Jesus is, you know, tabernacling is to live with his people. And, you know, God was present with his people in the wilderness. And uh, the idea of tabernacles for us, we talked about the fall feast being talking about Jesus' second coming. And the idea of tabernacles is a time when Jesus will come and return to earth in the second coming and set up his millennial kingdom, his eternal kingdom. And so the idea of tabernacling is, is kind of what that's talking about, tabernacling, that God is going to live with us. We're going to live with him in his kingdom. That's what it's... That's what it's looking forward to. And part of that is going to be the ingathering of the souls, ingathering of the people who believed in him, the ingathering to live with him in his kingdom. So the ingathering idea is an important part of it. So it says here, uh, so on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruits of the land, you are to keep the feast of Adonai for seven days. 
The first day is to be a Shabbat rest, and the eighth day will also be a Shabbat rest. On the first day, you are to take choice, and this is this is important. You take choice fruit of trees. Fruit is an important part of this holiday. Uh, all different fruits, branches of palm trees. This is where the palm tree idea comes in with tabernacles. Boughs, uh, boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and also willows is another important. Uh, um, uh, part that they use for building their tents and, and having in as decorations and so forth. And then this is important. Willows of the brook and, and what? Rejoice and rejoice. So God actually calls them, hey, during this one, you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to have joy. You're supposed to rejo- This is one where it's okay. Remember, they're just coming out of the Day of Atonement, right? They're just coming out of Yom Kippur, which is a very solemn and serious thing. And they have to go before God with their sins and all of this and repent and all of this. And now he says, okay, now enjoy this. Rejoice in this. Uh, but for seven days. You are to celebrate it as a festival to Adonai. Remember one of the other, one they called it Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. Or sometimes they just called it the festival, the festival. To Adonai for seven days in a year, it is a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it in the seventh month. You are to live in Sukkot for seven days. All the native born in Israel are to live in Sukkot so that your generations may know that I had Bernai Israel to dwell in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai, your God. So that's what this uh, appointed time is all about, the Feast of Tabernacles. So last week we got to the point to where we were saying, what was the Feast of Tabernacles like in Jesus' day? And the first two things that we talked about was that they, they had to take their pilgrimage, to um, to Jerusalem, uh, that was part of an important part of this uh, appointed time of this this celebration, and so you had people from all over coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. The other thing is you had to build your booth, you had to build your tent or your temporary tabernacle, and so. People would either bring with them the materials or they would get them when they got to Jerusalem and they would build there all through the hills and the countryside, except that, remember, it had to be within a Sabbath day journey of the temple. So that's about a half a mile. So they would be in the hills and the surrounding open lands, but they had to stay within a certain distance because on the first day and the eighth day, they had to walk to the temple for this celebration, this uh, convocation, as it were, but they couldn't walk more than a Sabbath day journey, or that would be considered work. But still, they were spread out in the area. At night, you see all of these campfires lit, that kind of thing. And they all get there a little bit ahead of time, you know, because being good people, they get to things early to be ready, right? Like my wife, if she's 10 minutes early, she thinks she's late. So it's like, it's like, it's like I can say this, but she's not here today. Um, she may listen. I'm not going to let her listen. So she says, okay, we're going somewhere. Okay, we have to be there at a certain time. So what time are we going to leave? Uh, we're going to leave at like 6.30. Okay, so I'm, think, so I'm, I'm preparing myself to leave at 6.30. And that, you know, it takes me a while to get going. And so about uh, 6 o'clock, she goes, are you ready? 
I'm like, no, I'm not ready. She goes, well, why did you read us? I thought we were leaving at 6.30. But she gets stressed out. So we actually like always always leave like 15 minutes earlier than I. Now I've gotten to know that whatever I tell her, I need to be ready like 15 minutes before that because she wants to, she doesn't want to be late. No, I don't want to be late. So you go to Jerusalem and you get ready, you get there early. But when do you, when does it actually start? When, when do we say go? When does the, the, the celebration actually begin? Well, it begins because they, uh, they blow a trumpet from the wall of the temple around the land that can be heard all around. And that's like the, the signal that, okay, Sukkot has begun now. And that's, that's the way they do it. Okay, so we talked about the water ceremony and the light ceremony. So I want to talk about the water ceremony first because that one was really... They were both important, but the water ceremony really took on uh, the major importance during tabernacle, tabernacles. Um, and we talked about last week how rain was so important in the fall for Israel because they get all of the rain pretty much from November through March. We talked about they get 22 inches of rain, London gets 23 inches, but uh, Jerusalem gets all from November to March. In June, July, and August, they get zero rain. So what happened was because the rain starts like the 1st of November and Tabernacles is around the 1st of October and, and the harvest is over, now they're celebrating not only what the Lord has done for them in the past, but they're also asking God to bless them in the year that's going to come. And the big part of that is to pray for rain, give them the water that they need so that they can grow their crops for next year. And kind of like what we do in New Year's, some, and some way we do it at Thanksgiving, our own Thanksgiving is thank the Lord for what he's given you and ask him to continue to bless him, bless us in the year to come. That's kind of what they did. And what they were wanting was, please, God, give us the rain that we need for next year for our crops to grow. So water and tabernacles became closely associated to one another. This celebration of the water was not in Scripture. They did not take it from, God didn't say do this. But it became a tradition over time that they just did every year, just automatically. You know, you probably have certain traditions you do at Christmas or Easter or whatever that has just become something you just you just always do because it's you've always done it. It's like it become a tradition. And so this was a tradition that started actually by the time in Jesus' day. They had been celebrating this water ceremony during Tabernacles for like a hundred years before Jesus, even before Jesus' time. So. We have a video here. I'm playing here in just a minute. The the water ceremony s- centered around a gold pitcher of water that the high priest would get and bring back to the temple for a ceremony. And where he would get this water is at the Pool of Siloam, it's called, in Jerusalem. And the Pool of Siloam is really interesting. And that's what the video is going to be about that we're going to watch. The Pool of Siloam is a place where the Bible tells us that Jesus healed a man, a blind man, at the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam was, up until the 19th century, maybe in the 20th century, the main source of water for Jerusalem. It it, it came from the uh, sp- a spring called the Gihon Spring, G-I-H-O-N, the Gihon Spring, which was just outside of, of Jerusalem. 
And uh, what happened was in 700 BC, uh, there was a threat from Syria to King Hezekiah and the Jews who were living in Jerusalem at the time. And so King Hezekiah, uh, he constructed, had constructed this tunnel that goes through solid rock from the spring of Gihon to the pool of Siloam so that they would have access to water uh, while they were being surrounded by the Syrian army. So what they did was, and we found out about this as they excavated this tunnel, that, and they just found it recently, actually, um, that the engineers were digging out or, or you know, hammering out, I mean, chisels, uh, the, from both sides. One side started from Jerusalem out, and one side started from the spring in, and they were to meet in the middle. Now, that's a pretty difficult thing to do, right? Because it's a tunnel, it's underground, and it's through solid rock, and you have to come through and meet. And what they found out as they unearthed this tunnel is it wasn't in a straight line. I mean, okay, it's hard enough if it's a straight line. It wasn't a straight line. It actually curves. And there were curves, and they still met. And the reason they know, and you'll see it in the video here, the reason they know that this is the way it happened is because you can tell by the way the chisel marks are on the rock. It goes one direction from one side, the other direction from the other side, and they meet in the middle. And then they uncovered a um, an inscription at the end of the tunnel that was written back in... King Hezekiah's day, 700 BC, that actually said that this is the way they did it, which is kind of cool. Um, so the spring of Gihon, 700 BC, King Hezekiah, had, they have this amazing tunnel that they, miraculous really, tunnel that they make. It brings water from the spring of Gihon into the pool of, pool of Siloam uh, in Jerusalem. And 700 years later, Jesus heals a blind man there. Isn't that crazy? I have a question. Yeah. So if that's a water source for the city, yeah. um, isn't that also the one that uh, people get into when the angel troubles the water? No, that's a different one. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, that's Bethsaida. Yeah, they had yeah, they had other ones, but this was the main source because it came from a spring. Yeah, that was a different one. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, uh, just really quickly, I have it here, I think. Think. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So in John chapter 9, if you want to look at it just real quickly, uh, verse 1, 9 1 says, As Yeshua was passing by, this is John 9, chapter, uh, John 9, 1. As Yeshua was passing by, he saw a man who had been blind since birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Yeshua answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the works of God might be brought to light uh, in him. We must do the work of the one who sent me uh, so long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, this is something he's already, he said to him. Just, we're going to look at that in just a minute. This is the second time he's told them that I'm the light of the world. Having said, and, 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 and just keep in mind, okay, the light of the world. Okay, verse 6. Having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with saliva, and spread the mud on the blind man's eyes. He told him, go to the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away, washed, and came back seeing. 
And then you go into this whole thing where like they didn't recognize this man and they brought his parents and they brought people who knew him and they said, how do they do this and so on and so forth. Why, this is just as an aside, why, I mean, Jesus healed blind people all the time. And this was never a reaction. This was never a reaction that, well, who is this guy? He looks like the guy, but is he the guy? Bring a parent. Is, he, is this your son? Is this the guy? Why? And this is the only time where Jesus spat in the ground and used mud. So why is this one so different from the others? Well, here's what I think. I don't think that I was just born blind. I think it was born without eyes. God created Adam, right, from, from the earth. So God used mud, right? He didn't have to do it, but it was just the poetry of God. He used earth to create eyes for this guy. So now, wouldn't you say, here was a man who had no eyes, who now has eyes? Then you can understand, right? Why is this the guy? Looks like him, but he didn't have eyes. Now he has eyes. His parents. So I think, considering the whole context of it and the way it was done and the reaction of it, that's what happened. Okay, so you can believe if not. I'm just, this is me. Just what I think. So. But look, look at verse, so verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1, as Yeshua was passing by. Okay, when was he passing by? Okay, let's go back and look at chapter 8, verse 1. It says, but Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. When did he go to the Mount of Olives? Well, look back at chapter 7, verse 37. 7:37. On the last and greatest day of the feast. So what are we talking about here? The feast is the tabernacles, the feast or the fest, the festival or the feast. On the last and greatest day of the feast, so this is on the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Yeshua stood up and cried out loudly, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Okay. So then there's this whole thing, and it says, if you go look in verse uh, 52 uh, or verse 53, then at the end of this little thing in, in chapter 7, it says verse 53, then everyone, to, everyone went to his own house. So what is this? On the evening of the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus finishes teaching. He has an encounter with the Pharisees. And at the end of that day, the end of the seventh day, it says, then everyone went to his own house that night. And then verse 1 of chapter 8, but Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. So in other words, at the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, after this episode in verse 7, or chapter 7, in chapter 8, everybody goes to his home, but Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. And then in verse, so then it says, verse 2 there of chapter 8, at dawn, he came again to the temple. So at dawn, when? At dawn on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also a special day in the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So at dawn, he came again to the temple, and that is supposed to be a Sabbath day, right? A Sabbath day rest. But then in verse nine, in chapter 9, it says, as Yeshua was passing by, he saw a man. This is the same day. So on this eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus healed this man at the Pool of Siloam. And, you know, it got him in trouble with the Pharisees again because they considered healing someone as work. And he was doing it on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is supposed to be a Sabbath day. So this also got Jesus in trouble. But 
you know, you give a man eyes who didn't have eyes, you know, then that's 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 okay, I think. So anyway, so so this is a video. It talks about the Pool of Siloam, and uh, there's a video about it, and uh, I think it will. It's cool. It's cool. So anyway. Hi, I'm Anne Frankel, the founder of JerusalemExperience.com, and today we're visiting the Pool of Siloam and the City of David here in Jerusalem. And here with me is Danny Ehrman, also known as Dalton the Digger, an archaeologist and the digger. a tour guide. <laughs> so, Danny, what is unique about this place? Well, this is one of the few places where, through archaeological means, you can find a site, a place that is mentioned in the scriptures. In this case, an event that is mentioned only in the Gospel of John, of Jesus curing a blind person. The place mentioned is the Pool of Siloam. And where is it? In 2004, and only in 2004 we actually found it. We thought it was in a different location, but archaeology proved it to be at the very southern end of this slope. Let me show you what it's all about. Welcome to JerusalemExperience.com, the place where you can watch videos from Jerusalem and its holy sites from your computer the Gospel of John, and only the Gospel of John, records Jesus performing a miracle at the site called the Pool of Siloam. A blind person approaches him seeking redemption and cure to his blindness. Jesus puts mud on his face and tells him, now wash it off in the water of the Pool of Siloam. The blind person does so and he regains his eyesight. Now the question is, where is this site? In the Byzantine period, the spot of the Pool of Siloam was identified in another location, and a big church was built over it. And until 2004, also modern scholarship thought that's the location. But then, in 2004, maintenance work done here uncovered a set of steps. And yet the corner over here seems to indicate it's not some step street, but it's part of a big uh, immersion pool for the public. Here is an assumption of what the whole thing looked like. We are now looking at just the corner of it over here. And this is dated to the time of Jesus. So this, people, is probably the real pool of Siloam. This is where Jesus performed his miracle. Where did the water come from? Let's go to the source of the water. Where did the water of this pool come from? What is the source? Where is the spring? You see that the water accumulates here also today. And without this modern plastic pipeline, this whole area would be flooded. But the source is actually 500 meters away from us. And it reaches this part of the city by a tunnel that was dug 700 years before Jesus used this pool of Siloam. The tunnel that feeds this pool is actually from the Old Testament days, from the time of King Hezekiah. In 701 BC, that king commanded the creation of a tunnel to take the water to secure the area in fear of the Assyrian attack. And that kept being used also in the time of Jesus. And in fact, it still works to this day. Let's go and see it.
But where did the pool of Siloam get its water from? Apparently, in the time that the pool was operating, they didn't realize that the water source is actually 500 meters away, stemming from a spring which is right beneath our feet. And the tunnel which connected it to the pool of Siloam was dug 700 years earlier by King Hezekiah anticipating an Assyrian attack. And it still operates to this day. Let's take a look. This is the first place where the water can be seen. And this is where the water starts running along the Hezekiah's tunnel all the way to the pool of Siloam. That's pretty good current, isn't it? Don't go there if you're claustrophobic. No, I don't. I, I, it's it's incredible. It's a solid rock too. I'll, t I'll address that here in a sec. This is the old place they thought it was before. So the water tunnel today ends where the kids are now looking into it. And it feeds this small pool, which already in antiquity was believed to be the Pool of Siloam in Christian ancient times. These pillars are part of an ancient church that was built over here. One pillar is perhaps still standing in its original location over here. But in 2004, by accident, another spot was traced around the corner here, and it proved to be the real pool of Siloam. The water continued to flow. It doesn't end here. And now we understand that this is not the end of the tunnel. The pool of Siloam is really around the corner. Okay. Amazing, isn't it? Isn't that something? So, Grady, to answer your question, why was it? Why did it curve like that? There's two uh, trains of thought, and maybe it's a little bit of both. One is that maybe there was some kind of a natural ge geological formation that they were following when they created the tunnel that we don't see now because the tunnel's taken its place. Some kind of a crevice or something that they were following, perhaps. But some. Engineers who are uh, 
mining engineers who work in mines and engineer in mines, the, the way this uh, works is it's kind of a it's kind of a siphon. It's kind of the way it works. And so what happens is the water, as it comes down, it's not really a steady flow of water. It kind of gushes, and then it stops, and then it gushes. Well, if you know, if you've ever, like, put something in a, what do they call those things that you're pouring into? Oh, a, funnel. A, a funnel, a funnel. You know, if you pour into a funnel so quickly, it, it, it's, it goes up, and then it kind of releases and goes down. That's kind of what happens here. The water goes in, and it can't all go through at one time, so it kind of gets bottled up, and then it kind of releases, and then it repeats that. So some of these mining engineers said, when you want to control the flow of water that gushes like that, you curve your mine so that it keeps it slows the water down and keeps it more under control. What, what would you do to prevent the water from keeping on flowing and just, just totally overflow? The pool at the other end. Well, I think that's part of that engineering part. Of, that's maybe why the curving part, because that was able to keep the flow slower, you know, and it comes in and, and filters out more slowly. Some, some way, though, that it emptied out in the pool and right. maybe got recycled. Yeah, know. yeah. So, so that's it. So just quickly, uh, what would happen with this, uh, this water ceremony is that the high priest would go to the Pool of Siloam. There'd be this big procession that would go to the Pool of Siloam with him in the morning. And he would have this gold pitcher, and he would get water from the Pool of Siloam. Then they'd process back to, um, back to the temple. And while they were doing that, another group led by another priest would go to a different location just outside Jerusalem, and they would collect palm branches and willow branches. And they would bring that back uh, to, as well. So when, when they came back to uh, the temple area, the priest with the water uh, would come through the southern gate of the city, which is known as the water gate. Yeah, not water gate. See, Stan, he goes right at me at the water gate, right? <laughs> it was called the water gate because this is where the water came, came in from the Pool of Siloam for the Feast of Tabernacles. So uh, he would come in from the water gate. The other people would come in with their um, palm branches and willow branches. And as he entered the water gate, there would be three blasts on these trumpets, not the shofars. These would be like the metal trumpets, the silver trumpets. As he would come into the water gate with this water, there would be three blasts on the, uh, on the trumpets. And then the uh, priest would recite a verse from Isaiah. If you want to look at it, it's in Isaiah 12. And this is a verse. So when he comes back with the water, the, um, the uh, priest, or there would be these three blasts of water, and then the priest would, um, would, re would recite this verse from Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12, verse, I'm going to start before that. Okay, Isaiah, is Isaiah verse 12, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So they would, they would repeat this and recite this as the priest would come in with the water. What's interesting is we know from previous classes that the Jewish word or the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. 
which is Jesus' name, right? So I'm going to go back and read from verse 1 of of chapter 12 of Isaiah, and I'm just going to change that to the original Hebrew. In that day you will say, I will give you thanks, Adonai, for though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my Yeshua. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord Adonai is my strength and my song. He also has become my Yeshua. With joy you will draw water from the wells of Yeshua. Isn't that interesting? It kind of changes it a little bit, doesn't it? So I went into my uh, Hebrew um, lexicon and I looked up Yeshua. And sure enough, in the Hebrew, it means salvation. And here's the definition of it from my uh, lexicon. It says, Yeshua generally means salvation, deliverance, savior. Even more so than the other verb, yasa. Yasa also means save. Means save. We talked about yasha. We talked about hosanna, hoshiana. That's yasa. When we talk about hosanna, that's save. That's yasa. That's not Yeshua. But anyway, it says even more so than the verb yasa. This noun is limited to God as Savior and the deliverance he brings. God, of course, is the one who has brought deliverance to his people from Egypt, as the Song of Moses states. The Lord has become my salvation. The Lord has become my Yeshua. The Lord likewise single-handedly brought deliverance to his people against the Moabites and Ammonites in the days of Jehoshaphat. This noun is used 45 times in the Psalms and 19 times in Isaiah, to proclaim the Lord's salvation of his people. While some of these may have their background, uh, may have as their background a time of physical danger for God's people, the spiritual implications of this word cannot be denied. My soul will rejoice in the Lord and delight in his Yeshua, Psalm 35. Surely God is my Yeshua, I will trust and not be afraid, Isaiah 12. God challenges his servant to tell forth the message of his saving power. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who proclaim Yeshua, Isaiah 52. This servant is primarily fulfilled in the beautiful ministry of our Savior Jesus Christ, but then also in his servant people, in us. So, so uh, the angel came to Mary and he said, you shall call his name Yeshua because he shall save his people. Same thing. Right. So, if you go through the Old Testament, and when they have salvation, most of the time it's going to be Yeshua. And if you see it that way, oh my goodness, it just it changes that. It gives you goosebumps. It just changes everything, doesn't it? So um, what would happen then is that the priest would enter the temple. There'd be these blasts. They would, they would recite this uh, from Isaiah. And then the, the priest would go to the uh, altar, and he would go to the top, and there'd be two silver basins up there. And uh, one was to put in the, um, the, the wine that was uh, the, uh, uh, the, the wine. Remember, they had to bring a wine offering or an offering of wine, a drink offering, they called it. So one of the basins was for the regular drink offering, which one of the priests would, would pour into that basin. But the high priest would take the water from the pool of Siloam, and he would pour the water in the other basin. And, you know, you can't, if you're the high priest, right, and you have this procession, all these people, you can't just pour the water. you got to, like, really pour the water, you know. So I mean, this big, this big uh, you know, display of uh, pouring the water. And so that was, that was what that was about. Um, 
so at, then as they did that, there would be three more blasts on uh, the silver trumpets again, and then a choir of Levites would sing the Hallel, Psalms 113 to 118, and we talked about before the first one about tabernacles, Psalm 118 is that messianic, uh, messianic psalm that talks about the Messiah, it talks about the Hosanna verse, and uh, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this they were singing, this they were celebrating. The, the Psalm 118 uh, was uh, where they, so let's look at it real quick. We'll take just a end on this. So Psalm 118, let's go back to it. Here we go. Psalm 118, verse 25 is the one that they, they, that they, uh, that they sang with gusto. Psalm 25. Hoshiana, or Hosanna, please Adonai, save now. Please, we're begging you, we're beseeching you, please save us now, now. And then we beseech you, Adonai, prosper us. So they were singing this and just praising God and asking him to be present, asking him to continue, because Tabernacle is all about Tabernacle is all about God's taking care of his people. So please save us now, prosper us now, be with us now, and help us now. And it was just, this was the culmination of, of everything, this uh, 118, this messianic psalm um, that pointed to a Messiah to come, which was who was actually just standing in their midst because Jesus observed these in his day, and he would have been right there in the temple when they were singing this about the Messiah who they believed would come, and he was right there in their midst hearing them say this and, and celebrate this about him, which is kind of amazing and cool. So so that's it. Um, so uh, I have a new quick, quick story for you today. This is my Linton essay. I'll try to get through it real quick. Uh, we're doing Faces at the Cross this year for Lent. This is Nicodemus. The face at the cross is Nicodemus. Nicodemus, and he's saying, I thought the darkness would hide me. After all, I had my reputation to consider. What would the rest of the Sanhedrin think if they knew I had requested an audience with the man they had begun to fear, the one they saw as their usurper? There was no way I could be seen speaking with Jesus in the light of day. The risks were just too great. Surprisingly, though, he agreed to come and see me, even at night, which was a relief. I'm not sure what I expected. I remember being nervous. After all, he had become so popular so quickly. Every day, the crowds which followed him grew larger, and every one of those people came away from his sermons and healings with a head full of big expectations and threatening ideas. Already there were whispers from those who followed him that he was the Messiah, the promised and long-awaited anointed one, sent by God himself. Should he end up seeing me as an enemy, I said to myself, my very life might be in danger from those same followers. And how could I forget the way he had barged into the temple just before Passover and chased away all the money changers and traders with a whip made out of cords while at the same time overturning their tables, scattering both their coins and their livestock everywhere? He could be dangerous for sure. But I wanted to know, who was he really? After the incident in the temple, he came to Jerusalem daily during the uh, week before Passover, performing all sorts of miracles. Word had gotten out about the way he had changed water into wine at a small wedding in the countryside of Cana, and now he was here in this big city, healing the deaf and the blind, and even curing the lepers, curing the incurable. He had been doing things that would have been impossible, surely, unless God was part of it. 
unless God had sent him to be a special teacher and healer. I waited in the dark at the appointed place, just inside the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane. I had heard it was one of his favorite places. Soon footsteps were coming my way, and my heart leaped within my chest. It was all I could do to keep my feet from running in the other direction. But I waited. As he arrived, I noticed that he was alone. I had never seen him by himself before. Even without the usual mob around him, he always had his band of apostles nearby. Not that night, though. Maybe he knew how afraid I was of being seen with him, and he protected me even from his own closest friends. We sat down in the soft grass, and I could wait no longer. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. I awaited his answer, but when he answered, it was not the answer I expected. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What? How was that possible? I had been born one time. I had been born into God's chosen family, the Jews. I had achieved the status of Pharisee, the most obedient of all all people to God's law. And I had been elevated to a position on the Sanhedrin and a leader among them for good measure. Certainly my one birth was enough for me to see the kingdom of God. Now Jesus was telling me all of that was not enough. I needed something else. I needed to be born a second time. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Then he said something that has been ringing in my ears for years. For God loved the world, so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I walked away confused, but impressed. What he said, he said with such conviction and confidence and such authority, like there was no doubt about it, no question. It was the truth, a foregone fact. But what was I supposed to do with it? I went back to the Sanhedrin. Jesus went back to his preaching and miracle working. I kept an eye on him, of course. The turning point came uh, before uh, in my thinking when Jesus did something that amazed everyone, confirming for the crowd who they claimed him to be and setting his fate with the Sanhedrin. He walked up to a tomb of a man who had been dead for four days. Lazarus was his name, the brother of two sisters named Mary and Martha. He looked inside the tomb, said a short prayer, then shouted, Lazarus, come out. No one spoke, not a noise was heard. Then a faint sound came from inside the tomb, someone shuffling, walking out, not in. The next sight was unbelievable. A man, still partly wrapped in his burial cloth, slowly exited the tomb, alive and well. Lazarus had come back from the dead. How was it possible? Looking around, I saw a friend of mine near the back of the crowd, Joseph. We had met in his hometown of Arimathea several years before and had become good friends. What was he doing there? At about the same time, he saw me too, and I waved him over. You better be careful, I said to him. Someone might think you too have become one of Jesus' believers. Joseph looked around to make sure no one else was within earshot. Oh, but I do believe, my friend, he responded under his breath. I believe that this Jesus is our Messiah, our Savior. How can you not believe? How can you not believe? Those words bothered me for days. Before I could come up with an answer, I found myself confronted by Jesus again, and again in the middle of the night. Jesus had finally become too much of a threat to our chief priests and elders. He seemed to be taking over the whole world. As more people flocked to him, fewer of them flocked to them. Eventually, the Sanhedrin ordered soldiers to go arrest Jesus, guided by one of his apostles, whom they paid off with 30 pieces of silver. A few hours later, the soldiers grabbed him. They brought him before us. 
It was obvious, however, that this hearing was not going to be the usual trial. A usual trial would never have been held after dark for one thing. He had no chance. All the odds were stacked against him. In the end, he was found guilty of blasphemy and marched off to Pilate with the plan of convincing Rome to do what Israel could not do, crucify him. Could that possibly happen? I didn't think so. How wrong I was. He was crucified after all. Somehow, between our chief priests and Pilate and Herod and the crowd, Jesus had been sentenced to death, and the execution was hastened so it would be over before Passover, uh, before our Passover observance would begin. After all, not even a man who some believed to be the deliverer of his people could be punished during the religious ceremony commemorating the day God delivered his people from Egypt. As all of Jerusalem flocked to the crucifixion scene, I had decided to stay in town and not go. But Joseph insisted that I come with him to witness what would happen, so I went. As bad as it was for Jesus, he never lashed out. He never condemned his accusers or his executioners. Instead, he was gracious. He was humble. He spoke words of love and words of forgiveness. It was then that I suddenly realized how a man could be born again, because I was. This new birth was not a physical rebirth, but a spiritual new birth. I knew at that moment that I had been born again myself. As I opened my heart and spirit to Jesus as my Savior, I found forgiveness, hope, and a joy that I could not understand, especially on such a sad day. Reborn! Yes, as Jesus died on the cross, so my first birth also died, replaced by my second birth. I looked at Joseph, but I didn't need to say a word. He knew just by the look in my eyes and the tears. A few hours later, it was all over. Jesus was dead, but still hanging on the cross. Joseph had gone to ask Pilate for Jesus' body. His plan was to bury Jesus in the new tomb that Joseph had recently bought for himself in the garden near the cross. I decided to buy burial spices and linen so that we could properly anoint Jesus and give him the respect he deserved, even though it was in his death. Now I would no longer be a secret follower of Jesus, hiding in the dark. Now I wanted the whole world to know. Joseph felt the same way. We met at the foot of the cross. Jesus, I mean, Joseph climbed the ladder and pulled out the nails in Jesus' hand and, hands and feet. We lowered Jesus down. He lowered Jesus down to me, and I lay him gently on the ground in front of the cross. With the help of Joseph's men, we carried Jesus to the tomb. We used some of the linen cloths to clean away the blood from his body. We removed the crown of thorns. We rubbed aloe and other spices on his wounds, and then we wrapped him in burial cloths and left him there. Even though I left him in that tomb, I knew he had not left me. He will not leave me. Today is Passover, the day after the crucifixion, and the world is quiet for a while. I don't know what will happen in the days to come, what will become of Jesus in that tomb. If Lazarus could come out of his tomb when Jesus called, could Jesus come out of his own tomb? I would not be surprised. After all, I was once dead in my sin, and I have now been raised from the tomb of my old life to a resurrected new life in him. If God can do that for me, then what might he do for his one and only son, who was without sin? Surely another miracle is coming. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, 
the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today, and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you, shalom.